millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted. Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton, and we are in the studio today uh, with quite a collection of folks. Where uh, This is going to be a little bit different show if you have listened for a long period of time. Uh, today we're going to kind of trade roles. Uh, I am here in the studio along with my wife, Shar, my much better half, so I'm pleased to have her here. And we had the opportunity to travel recently to the Middle East and interview persecuted Christians, uh, hear their stories, hear about what their lives are like, and also hear what God is doing in that part of the world. Some really remarkable things that he is doing. And so uh, we wanted to share that trip with you. Uh, however, obviously, it would be awkward to ask ourselves questions. So I have asked my coworker, Kim, uh, to come in the studio and kind of host this interview. So she's going to be our host this week. Uh, Shar and I are going to be the guests. And uh, that's the plan, obviously a little different than normal. So we hope you will join us as we kind of talk about the Middle East. And I'll turn it over to my coworker, Kim. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here with you and to get to turn the tables on you and ask the <laughs> questions. So you traveled with your wife, Shar. So how did that come about? How? Why Shar? Why did she get to come with you on this particular trip? And Shar, you can jump in here if you want. The Lord opened the door for her to be able to go. And so her boss let her have time off her job so she could go and do this. And, uh, you know, we always cherish the opportunity to travel together. We both enjoy travel, just enjoy it for the sake of travel. Uh, but then to be able to minister alongside of each other and uh, really share in these experiences. I think, uh, you know, for 23, almost 24 years, I've gone on these trips and then come back and tell the stories to her. Uh, so to have her there to hear the stories firsthand, I think uh, is a great opportunity and a great privilege. And I know I love having her along on the trip, but Charm. What would you say to that? I love traveling. And when you asked me, it took me about three and a half seconds to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is kind of part of that, too. Um, how when you travel by yourself, Todd, how is it different when you have Shar there with you? How do you see that people interact with you differently? Is there a little bit of a benefit of traveling as a couple? There certainly are benefits. And I think one of the benefits for me personally is I don't feel bad about being gone from home if Char's with me because <laughs> kind of home is, is wherever we are together. And so there's not any sort of second thoughts about what am I missing back home. I can really just focus 100 percent on what's in front of us. The other thing, and particularly in the Middle East in an Islamic context, having a woman there to interact with other women is a big deal. Uh, me as a man... I can't interact as much with women, just culturally it's not appropriate. Um, and so having her with me really opened doors, I think, especially as we talk to women, for them to be able to open up a little more and and share a little more deeply, just because it wasn't sort of that cultural taboo of, hey, I, I can't share this with a man. Shar, mm -hmm. were you able to have any one-on-one -on -one conversations with women? Um, yes, over lunch and some things like that, they were just... Not necessarily about their stories, but just 
talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I know you've been to Turkey and maybe some other places, but was this your first time in the Middle East proper or however we're going to define that? Um, it was not my first time in the Middle East, but it was my first time in the Middle East doing this kind of thing. Were there things that you noticed culturally? Um, and I'm thinking particularly being a, women, a woman because I know I have to pay careful attention to how I dress, um, maybe things that I say or gestures, something like that. Was there anything that stood out to you that you noticed? I was very surprised at the number of of the women who were in full hijabs, partial, and then some not at all, which I was not in, in one. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I expected them all to be in them, and they were not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true, right? We have a certain idea of, of how it is there, and there's a huge variety there. Right. Um, so I heard that your bags were packed with <laughs> special things. Um, do you want to talk about what was in your bags and why you uh, were bringing those? We had been asked by another ministry to take some, they were SD cards that had the Bible on them and some teachings and some music, and we brought about 13,000 of them between our suitcases to take into and give to our contact there who was going to pass them out. When my bag came off the conveyor belt, it had a big sign on it that said, needs extra security, and I was like, oh, awesome. (laughs) And then Todd's bag didn't come which it all has so had some in it. So by the time we got through figuring all of that out, we were the last people in the airport. It was late at night. You have to sec- go through another security when you get your bags, which is different than in America. And when we took put them through the conveyor belt for the security check, they pulled it off and very rudely, I thought, rifled through my suitcase and got out all of these um, SD cards. And I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. They made Todd go and told him to go to immigration and took the cards with him. And so I was just sitting there left with my bag open and all of my stuff out on the table and not sure what that meant. And there was two guys there talking and I said, can I go with him? And one of them said no. And the other guys, they talked and he's like, no, you can go. You're not in trouble. So he helped me put my suitcase back and together. And I went to where Todd was and I relaxed a little bit then because they asked if I wanted water and gave me a seat, and I figured it was not going to be too bad. Mm-hmm. So those SD cards, so what you're talking about, they're memory cards, and they have versions of the Bible on them. Correct. So it could be an issue, right, if they think that you're Correct, although in. we told them that that's what was on it and mm-hmm. offered them one to listen to, which mm-hmm. they did not take us up on. Do you think they were nervous at the fact that it looked like you had electronics, or do you think they it was because of the content of what was on the memory cards? I don't feel like the content had anything to do with it. When it came down to it, I think that it was the fact that they thought we were going to sell them hmm. and we needed to pay a tax to them. So you met with lots of different individuals. One of the ones that I wanted to ask you about was a woman who has planted 40 churches. Can you tell me about her? <laughs> this, this was probably the highlight conversation of the trip uh, in some ways. And this is a lady from Iran, so a very, very close country. Uh, And she has only been a believer for two years. And she has planted almost 40 house churches in that time with, like they track the believers, like five generations deep within her network. So the people she led to Christ are leading other people to Christ who are leading other people. I mean, it's just spreading like wildfire in two years. And uh, there were a couple things that really stuck out to me from the conversation because one of the questions I asked her is, "Do you, you know, do you worry? You you live in Iran. Christians in Iran get arrested. Are you worried about that? Do you are you worried?" And she said, "You know, I really don't think about it. I, I just don't 
spend a lot of time thinking about that at all. I, I'm doing the work. I'm busy, and I don't think about if if that happens, God will see me through that. God will be with me. The other question I asked, and I was I felt awkward after I asked it, as I said, so what would you say uh, to Christians who aren't sharing their faith with other people? And she, she just kind of looked at me like, can you, what are those? You know, like, like what, why would a Christian not be sharing their faith? What, what kind of Christian is that? And I thought, oh. Yeah, it was an ouch moment. It was an ouch moment. Yeah, a, a dumb question. Um, but just to see her passion, um, and, and she just uses every opportunity to pray with someone or to talk to them about Jesus or to say, hey, how about if I pray for you? And then Jesus answers the prayer, and then she doesn't even have to say anything. The person will come back to her and say, hey, you prayed to Jesus, and then my the prayer was answered, so tell me more. I want to know more. Um, and just to see that little one person, but that's happening multiple places in Iran. The, the church is just growing so fast. There's so much hunger for the gospel there. Uh, and hearing her story was, like I say, one of the high points of the trip. So did you meet other Iranians on this trip? We did. We had the chance to meet several different Iranian believers, and uh, we actually sat in on some of the trainings uh, that they were undergoing to help them in, in the ministry inside Iran. And, and one of the things that struck me about it was just how practical it was. Basically, their methodology is they, they read a scripture passage together, and they say, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? What does this say that we're supposed to do? What does this say that we're not supposed to do? And so pick any scripture passage you want and then ask those four questions. And just it's a discussion. It's not a like, hey, I'm up here. I'm the expert. I'm teaching. But it was just so practical to say every single one of you can now go back to Iran and you can lead a house church. You can lead a Bible study group. Just read a passage of scripture. Ask these four questions. Talk about it. Pray about it. And they practiced. They taught them and then they had them teach it back to them. And one of the guys that we met had only been a believer for a week. Um, <laughs> and so like he's a brand new baby Christian, but he's already being trained. Okay, here's how you share your faith. Here's how you lead a Bible study. <laughs> and it just was very, like I say, very, very practical. But also the idea is every single person is a minister. This is not something like you have a pastor and then everyone else just sits and listens to the pastor. It's like, no, no, no. This is how you can lead a Bible study. Now you go do it. Let me share one other story from one of the Iranian believers because it, it was funny when he said it. Uh, we talked to this young couple, and uh, he came to faith, then she came to faith. Uh, but he said his sister shared Christ with him. And he said the first time that his sister talked to him about Jesus, he said, you need to shut up. That stuff will get you killed. <laughs> and so... It was like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about that. But then now he's obviously, he's a believer, and now he's talking to other people about Christ. So the same thing that he said, hey, that stuff will get you killed, he's now doing that every single week. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that she had planted 40 churches, and you also used the term house church. What does that mean in Iran? Well, there are no building churches in the country that are still open that speak Farsi. Hmm. Um, so Farsi is the national language. There's no... You, you cannot find a building where you go to a worship service in Farsi. So every church is a house church, really. Um, and, and that could be three or four or five people gathered together. It might be maybe 20 people gathered together. I think 
much beyond 20 is probably going to get too much attention and too much notice and, hey, what's going on in your house? Um, so those are, uh, we might use the word Bible study groups, we might use the word cell church or home church, um, but it's basically, it's a group of Christians who are gathered together to study God's Word and to grow in their faith and to pray for each other, mm-hmm. um, and then also to be equipped to go out and share their faith with other people. Mm. And this group that you met with, uh, are they using printed copies of the Bibles, or are they using another form of the Bible? They are using both, mm-hmm. all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, they use printed copies of the Bible. Uh, one of the things Voice of the Martyrs is trying to do is get more of those into the country, um, and, and some really cool things are happening on that front that we can't always talk about. Um, but they also use digital Bibles. We we took in the memory chips uh, to go in, and those have the text of the Bible. They also have some teaching. They also have some worship music. Um, so digital Bibles, uh, I think in some places in Iran, they're using audio Bibles um, that for people, maybe people who are illiterate uh, or have a low literacy rate, an audio Bible. Um, so Basically, any way that they can get God's Word into the country and into people's hands, that's what they want to do. But they're also pretty boldly, many of them, walking around with physical copies of the Bible in their backpack. Mm -hmm. Yes, all of the ones that we met had a physical Bible. And they are bold. Mm -hmm. There is no lack of boldness (laughs) in their churches. It's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And that's not just because they're foolish or crazy, right? They know that the the cultural... um, mood in their country is that people are hungry, like you mentioned before, and they've been under Islam for more than 30 years, and they're sick of it, and they're looking for something that's true and helpful. It's interesting because a lot of places in the Middle East, and we saw this in some of the other stops on our trip, the persecution typically comes from your family first. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait a minute, we're a Muslim family, you can't do that. In Iran, that's really not the case anymore. Typically, if there's persecution, it is from the government because, like you say, the people have given up on Islam. They know it doesn't work. And so if you come to your family and say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus now, the likely response is, well, hey, if that works for you, great, because we all know Islam doesn't work. But it's not like, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. So that's one of the differences between Iran and what we see in some of the other countries of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Um, And something else I think that they often do is when they start sharing the gospel, they're sharing within their family group, right? So relatives, um, people in the immediate household, and then maybe aunts, uncles, whoever. And when they have these house churches, even that's who's coming over. So it's kind of natural to have your relatives come to your house. Um, You mentioned briefly this, this man who'd only been a believer for one week. Was this somebody who just heard the gospel for the first time and then prayed? Or was there a, a season of preparation that led him to that decision? I would say it was a season. He had been friends with the man who led him to Christ for several years. I thought he said seven, but I could be mistaken on that. The way I understood it, it was the friend kind of little by little said things and eventually presented the gospel and he accepted. But it wasn't a just meet him and tell him. Mm-hmm. There was a friendship that had built up over time. Mm-hmm. And trust. Trust was, I think, a big part of it. And that's something I think that we see with uh, Muslims is it's adjusting their whole mindset. So you need that series of, of events or situations that happen along the way for them to to make that decision. But then once they do, you said he was immediately ready to share. He was ready to share mm-hmm. and ready to get trained. Like a weight had been lifted from him. We actually had the chance to see three MBBs get baptized mm-hmm. on this trip, which is a pretty rare thing 
for a foreigner like us to be able to be a part of. And I was, I was actually a little nervous, but it was funny because they had friends there that were had their like on their phones. They're like recording. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> it's like <laughs> we shouldn't take pictures of this. And they didn't so, care. So well, I was more worried than they were apparently about security. Baptism's crucial because why? The Islamic regime sees that as what in, the point in of the no is- return. Yeah, in the Islamic mindset, that's the point when you can never come back. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you're reading a Bible, you could say, "Oh, I was just exploring. I was just." But if you're baptized, it's like, "No, you weren't just exploring. You're you're an apostate. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be killed." But it was interesting. And as, as we walked in the room that evening, we you, could tell you could easily pick out the three who were going to be baptized. There was probably twenty people there in that room, mm-hmm. and the three men that were going to be baptized just beamed. So you could and tell were anxious and couldn't wait for it to okay. happen. Uh-huh. Were they wearing something? Or it was just uh, their no, face. No, they actually it's got changed later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, they absolutely glowed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was remarkable. We had a little uh, Bible study first, and they wanted to get it on the road. Let's go. Let's... <laughs> so, uh, was this in a swimming pool or some other? It was place? a kids' swimming pool. Uh huh. And it was outside. Outside, and it, and was, it was, cold. was really cold. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the water wasn't and it had heated. Sn- it was snowing, wasn't it? Snowing or raining? It was raining. raining, I guess. Oh, my goodness. That's dedication. Yeah. We can't even get people to come to church when it's <laughs> raining here sometimes. Um, but I've heard people say that uh, equipping uh, churches with a plastic kid's swimming pool is a tool for them to do this kind of evangelism. It absolutely so. is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we'll ever forget that evening. I, I mean, just like Char said, when you could look around the room and, oh, yeah, that 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 three people getting baptized, I, you could just tell by looking at them. It and then was, we ate Papa John's pizza. They had so <laughs> much joy and so much excitement, and um, and and we understand, and they certainly understand this. This like they're signing their own death sentence. Uh, I mean, this is a huge decision, and they absolutely glowed. Mm. But for them, it's it's the physical reminder of coming into the new life in Christ, yep. and they're ready for that. Yeah. You also, I know, met some people who you you said earlier. Often, it's not problems with the relatives, but you did meet at least one person whose family was after him for his conversion. Yeah, we met a couple of people who experiencing family persecution, and one of them just so happened to be the same age as our oldest son. So it was really easy for us to make the connection of of what he is going through. So that how old is your son? Twenty seven years. Okay, and. His own family tried to kill him. Three separate times. Yeah. They have now given up on that idea of actually physically killing him, but they just act like he's dead. <laughs> like he said, if he walks into a room, they will not look at him. They will not acknowledge him. They will not talk to him. Hmm. It is as if he does not exist hmm. um, when he walks into a room. And and yet, uh, and we could tell this this was a heavy burden for him. In fact, one of his friends had told him, of another friend who purported to be a believer had told him he should just forget his family and move on and he couldn't he wanted to he wants his family to be believers so he's staying in contact with them in fact i think he lives close there with them but he he can't abandon them because he wants to bring them to the lord too yeah and in those cultures Having your family, it's a very family-centered culture. It's not right. like here where you may move across the country for work. Everything revolves around the family relationship. And all of your opportunities. I mean, he's a young man. So all of your opportunities professionally, educationally, who you're going to marry, 
all of that is wrapped up in those family relationships and clan relationships. And he's now in fact, he, cut out of all when of those he was things. with us. He had a certain amount of time that he could be with us because he had to get back. He didn't want them to know that this is what he was doing. And he so he was very uh, antsy, I would say, to get his story told and then get back. Cause... So does he still live with his family? He does now in a room oh. that they have basically they shut him off and he's by himself. It made it sound almost like a servant's quarters. Like you think of the prodigal son saying, you know, I don't, I'm not your son anymore. I'll just work for you. It sounds like he's just like kind of shunned off hmm. to the side. Hmm. And that's a choice for him too, right? Because he could, like you said, probably go get help from a church and right. and get a job somewhere else. But he's choosing to sacrificially live with his family in order to be a light to them. Right. Hmm. The other thing, though, that encouraged us about him is I asked him, I said, have you had second thoughts? Like, this has cost you so much. Have you ever had second And he was like, why Why would I go back to the lie now that I've experienced the truth? And again, I felt Well, and that's <laughs> one of, of his big things question. when he started questioning. He would go to his imam and ask questions. And the imam would say, it's not for you to ask. You just follow. And he's like, I, I, I have questions. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't end. When he found Jesus it made sense and he could ask questions. And so that was the big tipping thing for him was it wasn't a big secret and you just obey and be quiet. Mm -hmm. The other family situation that we heard about was that we met the wife of a Muslim man who has, she's come to faith. He has not. She has basically been abused for more than a decade following Jesus and our host, who was helping facilitate the interview, just flat out asked her, he's like, well, why don't you leave? Why don't you leave your husband? He's doing all these terrible things to you. Why don't you just get out for your own protection? And she said, I have daughters. Teenage daughters that I don't want them to be married to a Muslim. I have to stay so to protect stay. my daughters. Mm -hmm. I mean, she literally is sacrificing her life just to try to protect her daughters from facing the same thing she's going through now. I mean, she would sit and sob telling us that, that he beat her on the regular and all these different things. But then in the next breath, I'm so thankful that I have Jesus and I can raise my kids that way. And pretty astounding. It was, yeah, that that interview, I think, will stick with both of us for a long time because her pain was so real and so evident, but also her faith and the fact that that Jesus is with her even in the midst of that. You mentioned also that you met some refugees over there. This was kind of a, for me personally, it was kind of a sobering part of the trip because these are folks who fled from ISIS five and six and seven years ago. And, you know, ISIS came into Mosul, ISIS came across the Nineveh Plains and and Iraqi Christians fled to Turkey, and they fled to Lebanon, and they fled to Jordan, and they fled to all of the surrounding countries. And we met some of those Christians who have now been in that sort of holding pattern for five years. Mm -hmm. One of the guys for eight years. He said, for eight years I've been here. And they don't have any legal status in the countries where they're at. They can't get jobs. Their kids can't go to school. They literally are just sitting there waiting for another country to welcome them for resettlement, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or Australia or wherever, they can't do anything to sort of restart their lives until they get that phone call that says, hey, you can come here. Mm -hmm. 
so we met several of these families and we're hearing the same thing. And finally, I asked one of the, I'm like, so what do you do all day? <laughs> like, like you've been here for years. What do you do every day to just make the time go by? And he said, well, I get up in the morning and I have breakfast and I go down to the park and there's like a group of men that we hang out together down there. And then I come home and I have lunch and then I usually take a nap and then I go back to the park and I hang out with a group of men and then I come home and I have dinner and then I go to bed. And the next morning I do the same thing again. For me, knowing that they're refugees, I think in my head, okay, then they're fine. They're safe. They're not physically being in danger, which is true. But now it's mental anguish, essentially, because they can't do anything. I mean, they're just bored to tears day after day after day. And they are given a place to live if parent, if some of their relatives send them money. But if they do anything to that apartment to make it better, then it gets taken away from them because mm -hmm. a refugee doesn't deserve that nice of a place. So like even they don't want they don't want to like paint. They don't want to do anything. Coat of paint or anything to make it nicer because then it'll be like, oh, no, this is too nice for a refugee. You got to move out. So is the government providing the apartments or they're paying for them? The host government provides a very, a very basic of level sort. of <laughs> support. And but then their families send them cash is what I understood. Almost all of them were dependent on family that has gone on to somewhere else mm -hmm. to be able to send money back. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys we met said they had their family had just found out they're going to Australia. In fact, they should be there now. So, yeah, they should be there now, which is great for them. They said they've been there five years and two months waiting to get this phone call. But he said as soon as he gets to Australia and gets a job, then he's going to send money back to his cousin who is still there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so – like I say, they have a very basic level of support from the host government, but then really to make ends meet, they have to have some other form of support. And they're very hesitant to like get a job like on the black market or, or the underground economy or whatever, because if they get caught, then they go to the back of the line as far as resettlement status. So they they didn't want to work or do anything illegal because they didn't want to get moved back to the back of the line mm -hmm. again. After after already five years, you don't want to go back to the back of the line. Right. And like I say, it was sobering for me because we talked a lot about these people five years ago and we prayed for them and we gave aid to them. But they've kind of fallen off the radar, I think, for a lot of Christians. Certainly for me, they had fallen off the radar that, wait a minute, that persecution from ISIS, they're still suffering that persecution mm -hmm. today, even though they're out of Iraq even though ISIS is, is so-called defeated, mm. the effects of that persecution, they're still living with every single day. Well, and I think about that little boy. They left with their baby who was six months old. So all that child has known is this little, tiny, dinky, yucky apartment with his family just sitting around looking at him because they can't do anything. Not going outside, not going to school, doesn't have friends because he can't. Mm -hmm. He's five. And the society around them doesn't think well of refugees. Right. right. Doesn't welcome them at mm -hmm. all. So mm -hmm. it, it, one, of the, one of the good parts of this story is how the church has reached out mm -hmm. and has welcomed refugees and has said, hey, we do want to help you. Um, and sometimes even helping Muslim refugees. And the refugees will say, well, you know, <laughs> why is it that the Christians are helping us? We don't even like them. And right. our Muslim brothers are just – they don't give us the time of day. So it, it has been an opportunity for witness. It has been an opportunity for outreach. Um, but I think of those Christian refugees, five, six years of of nothing, five, six years of going to the park every day to hang out and just pass the time, mm -hmm. that really 
is a horrible situation mm. for them. And um, you mentioned aid from the churches, and I was going to ask about that. I know that we're doing some food aid for refugees, just because, like you said, they have a small stipend and they are they can't work, so they're stretching everything. Um, I know that we've got another project, too, where they're making kind of handicrafts, just mm. like you said, to pass the time and to have some fellowship and give them some purpose. We did see, we visited one of the churches that we're partnering with there, and we saw that the craft part, uh, they also have like a daycare program for the, the kids. I, I don't think they call it a school, but it is a little bit of education and a little bit of socializing together with other kids. Um, so, yeah, Voice of the Martyrs has been helping with some of those projects all this time, all this five years. Um, but I would just encourage listeners to pray for those refugees, especially for a sense of encouragement, because it would be very easy to be discouraged, um, but also pray that God will open doors for them to get mm-hmm. to where they're going to go. Um, Is there no talk of going back to Iraq? Almost none. None. Because you think they're still afraid or they've lost everything, land, houses back there? Or do you have any sense of that? I think there is still fear. Like, if what are we going back to? I think ISIS destroyed so much of what they took over mm. um, that there's not a house to go back to. There's not a business to go back to. And they to. don't want to risk that again. And yeah. I think they also think, you know, if we're going to raise our kids— is it better to do that back in Iraq or is it better to do that in a Western nation where they have some freedom? Well, obviously, our kids have more opportunities in a Western nation. So we did not hear – I don't think anybody we talked to was like, man, I wish we could go back or maybe we'll be able to go and back And one of or the discouraging like things too is when they are turned down, if they get turned down for to go to a different country, they don't tell them why. Hmm. They just send them a letter, try again. So they don't have any idea what they need to do differently or to fix or how they can, which is hard as well. You um, also meant a man who I think I saw a report about, but he came to faith by giving a speech called Why I Am a Muslim. (laughs) And I love this story. Yes, we met this man and he was at the time was in his late teens. So he was very devout Muslim, because why else would they ask him to be the one to give this speech? Why I'm a Muslim uh, and why I'm a Shiite. Mm. Um, so it was, you know, not just, you know, general. It was very specific. Shia is the dominant form of Islam in Iran. In Iran. That's mm-hmm. correct. And he began to prepare for this speech and started doing his research and started having some questions <laughs> like like why am i a muslim <laughs> if this is what muslims teach if this is what they do if this is how they live why am i a muslim at the end of that process he couldn't give the speech he he, he didn't nor did they want him to yeah, nor did they want him to <laughs> so he ended up becoming coming to faith in christ out of that uh, out of that preparation out of that research and again and we heard this from several Shar mentioned it earlier in Islam, you are not welcome to ask questions. Um, it is do what you're told. Don't think too much about it. Don't ask questions. Um, and so, so often when there are questions like that and it starts down a pathway of, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Oh, wait, that doesn't make sense either. What about this? And the typical response from an imam or a parent or whoever is don't ask questions. In fact, one of the guys said they say, only Allah knows that. You're not supposed well, to Well, and it's kind of a shame thing because if they don't have the answer, they look bad. So they don't want you to ask because 
So, yeah, only Allah knows. Don't ask questions. Just do what you're told. And so this guy came to faith out of, you know, preparing a speech about why I'm a Muslim. Uh, he ended up being a Christian. Um, and he has suffered for that. His own family turned against him. Um, he has paid a high price for that. Uh, but he's never doubted. He's never, you know, thought about going backwards. Uh, it, it just, he discovered the truth. And he has all his questions answered. Hmm. Well, um, it can be quite a lot of cost in terms of money and time and effort to go visit our brothers and sisters um, in these hostile and restricted nations, particularly somewhere like the Middle East, where it's quite difficult and there's a lot of intense attention. So what's the value of two Western Christians going over there and speaking with our brothers and sisters? In my opinion, it's more valuable for me than them because it's a different perspective. In America, we don't have a clue what it's like, really. There's multiple value. I think, one, obviously, we're coming back to share the stories. So mm -hmm. we want other people to hear these stories. We want them to know. But there is the value of, uh, I like to say, the ministry of presence, um, just, just being there, being present there. And when that lady shared her story of her husband abusing her, and there's tears rolling down her face, and there's tears rolling down our face— there's something really powerful in her knowing I'm a part of a big family, and here these members of my family have come all this way just to hear my story, just to, just to listen to me, to pray with me, to encourage me to be here. I think there's great power in that and great encouragement, and nobody was hesitant to share their stories with us. It wasn't like, you know, who these Westerners, I don't, I don't know about you. I'm not sure I should do this. They were excited about what God is doing and what God has done. Uh, and they were excited to share that with us. And, and Couldn't wait to give us tea. We had yes, so much tea. we had lots of tea. <laughs> uh, and we're excited to come home and share those stories with people here. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think in the same way that sometimes it's hard for us to imagine them and visualize them, for for you to go as representatives of the body of Christ here in the U.S. and to be there physically with them also gives them a picture of the people who care about them and pray for them. And you said um, they weren't hesitant to share their stories because we have that instant fellowship. We have even though, you know, different language, culture, all those things, somehow knowing that someone's a believer, equally committed like you are, there's just an instant openness there that I've experienced yep. as well. And I think that it's, uh, for them, so life-giving to see your faces and to know that you're well, representing believers. And they were honored to share their stories mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit, there is a connection there. And mm -hmm. you see it, you know, like you've experienced it, we've experienced mm -hmm. it on this trip. And the other thing that's fun is, in many cases— they have a certain amount of English understanding, so there can be some conversations, sometimes for, for better or worse. Uh, but oftentimes it was funny because sometimes we would ask the question and it would be translated because we did all the interviews through a translator. Uh, but then sometimes the person we're asking the question to kind of knew. Let's start sometimes, answering. Sometimes they understood better than the translator. So mm -hmm. they're like, no, 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 this is what they mean. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those those cultural experiences add, add some fun to it as well. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing with me. Thanks for letting me hear your stories and sit in on this. And Shar, I'm so glad that you got to be with Todd while he was there and see him in action. I know you've done it before, but it's a good reminder. And, um, yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, 
please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted.